All right. Every time we get up here, they make us wear this microphone. So I always remember to turn it on. I write at the top of my notes, turn on mic. It would be a lot more comfortable writing that if our pastor wasn't named Mike. (laughs) Always afraid somebody's going to find these and go, oh? guess that's a good start. <laughs> Fortunately, our topic today is do not judge your neighbor. <laughs> this is a topic that ought to be a slam dunk, right? I mean, what do you say about this? I should get up here and go, don't judge your neighbor. Amen. Let's go to brunch. (laughs) What can you really say about this? But upon examination and looking a little deeper into what the Bible says about this, it really is hard to whittle this down into one talk. Uh, That was my difficulty, ironically, wasn't finding enough to say about it, but how to say too little about it. Uh, It reminds me of Samuel Clemens, better known as... uh, uh, I don't know. <laughs> I just Mark Twain. Thank you, Mark Twain. Should remember his name was Mark. But one of my favorite Mark Twain quotes was he wrote in a letter one time. He says, "I apologize for writing such a long letter, but I didn't have time to write a short one." <laughs> if anybody's ever tried to write something simply, you understand what he was talking about, don't you? Because ironically, sometimes it's harder to summarize your thoughts very succinctly and make the point quickly rather than go on and on and on and elaborate on things. And that's really the difficulty with this topic today. And I love this opportunity to get up and talk a little bit about this because this is one of my all-time favorite topics. Years ago in some of my studies, we came up with a list of what we considered to be the most misquoted or misunderstood verses in the Bible. There's a lot of them in there that you hear people quote all the time or, or commentate, you know, make commentaries on, but the foundations are wrong. Sometimes they're misquoted, sometimes they're misunderstood. And to me, this particular topic today was at the top of the list. And hopefully we'll understand a little bit as we go along here why. And just as a fair warning, believe it or not, you know, like if it's me up here, you know, this is probably not going to go the direction you think it should. But that's kind of a given. But just a fair warning, we may end up taking a bit of a swipe today at political correctness. (laughs) So there there you go. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Today's verse comes is very simple, two passages, comes out of the book of James. It simply says, Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, 
Who are you to judge your neighbor? I think we're all familiar with some of these statements I put up here. I personally hear these all the time. I hear things like, well, judge not lest ye be judged. Uh, Let him who is without sin cast the first stone. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Well, who am I or who are we to judge? Nobody's perfect. Oh, just leave it up to God. Do you know where I hear these statements more and more and more? It's not on Christian television or Christian radio. I'm hearing these things on the news. I hear them on NBC, CBS, ABC, uh, MSNBC, uh, you know, Fox News. I turn on the TV, I'm watching the news, and I hear all these Bible verses quoted. And they're quoted by people, ironically, who I would consider to be anti-Christians. Now, I didn't say non-Christians, but actually people that are anti-Christians. People that have, for one reason or another, rejected Christianity, they've rejected the teachings of the Bible, and they don't believe in it, they don't subscribe to it, they do not follow it. However, they love quoting it. And what that reminds me of, If some of us will recall the 40-day temptation of Christ. Remember that event the Bible records right after the baptism of our Lord where he was led out into the desert for 40 days to be tempted by the devil? That story is fascinating for all kinds of different reasons. But the one facet of that that has always got a hold of me and, and blew my mind more than any other is the exact way that the devil tempted Christ. What he did was he quoted the Bible in order to trip him up. And the way that Christ in turn defended himself against temptation was to quote the Bible in return. That's crazy. (laughs) If you think about it, here you have Christ and the devil, God in the flesh and the devil incarnate, quoting the Bible back to each other. Well, the first thing I take from that is obviously the devil knows his scriptures. He was quoting Old Testament scriptures to Christ, but he always did it with a twist. By leaving something out or adding a little in or taking things out of context in such a way that the only defense is to as Paul Harvey used to say, look at the rest of the story and fill in the blanks with the rest of what the Bible said. And you see, that isn't just a 2,000-year-old event. That same exact thing goes on today with people who are serving the wrong side using the Bible, ironically, of all things, to trip up Christians or to shut us up and silence us. And at face value, I hear these things, and my first response as a human is to go, well, it does say that. I guess they're right. I'd better stand down or shut up. I'd better not say anything. I'd better not address these issues because who am I? And there is a case where that is true, and it does align itself with what the Bible says. But you see, 
This is where I'm a word guy, and sometimes we have to define the words we use in order to really understand what we're being instructed to do. And that is so true in this case, because this is what I learned in my studies, is there are a lot of words in the Greek language that can be translated correctly as the word judgment. And these different words were used in different passages to communicate very specific applications or very specific methods of judging, different types of judging. And some of these words were more accurately translated into things like discern or decide or separate or make determinations about. There's other words that have to do with examining ourselves or uh, reaching conclusions based on evidence, measuring things according to different standards. And you see, when the Bible often talks, warns us against judging others, you'll find that the exact word they used for judge was the word krino. And the word krino is a specific type of judgment that is actually a judgment to condemnation. In a krino judgment, you're not just acting as a member of the jury. You're acting as the judge, the jury, and the executioner. We make judgments, we condemn people, and then we ourselves often want to even go vigilante and carry out and administer the judgment, the punishment, in other words. This is the specific type of judgment in these passages that we are warned against making. If you look in our worship bulletin, one of the passages that I put in here was the one that to me, kind of started this whole, this whole thing for me and kind of sent me down this rabbit trail. What it says is in Luke 6, Do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. He also told him this parable. Can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into a pit? Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. And you see, when we get into this passage in Luke, it really raises the question, was Christ addressing judgment or hypocrisy? And you see, I would maintain that what Christ was really addressing here was not being judgmental, so much as judging unfairly and being a hypocrite. Because one of the problems with the way that most of us think is we tend to think in opposites instead of absences. That's why sometimes what I love doing in studying the Bible, I don't just ask myself what it says, but okay, if it says this, then what doesn't it say? 
It's kind of like if we tend to think in opposites. That's what's called black or white thinking. We fall into that and we limit the answers based on asking the wrong questions. For instance, what's the opposite of dark? Light. What's the opposite of God? The devil. Uh, what's the opposite of love? Hate. But you see, some things have no opposite. Darkness is not the opposite of light. Light has no opposite. Darkness is simply the absence of light, isn't it? You see, these things are not co-equal. When, I open, when it's night and the lights are on in my house and I open the door, I always let the light out. I never let the dark in. <laughs> and even though it's dark outside, I don't open the door and see this wall of dark right at the door. <laughs> Why? Because light always has power over darkness. And it's the same with God. What's the opposite of God? There is none. The devil is not the opposite of God. Some people try to make the devil out to be co-equal. He's like the anti-God or the alternative God. But you see, the devil is simply a created being. Very, very limited in power. He's not the opposite, contrary to Eastern religion, you know, the yin-yang symbol where you have the two chevrons, one black, one white, and it represents the equal and opposite powers of good and evil. But you see, these things have no, good has no opposite. There's just the absence of good. Same with God. The devil really only has one superpower. He can lie. He's a really good liar. And that's it. There's so many things the devil cannot do. He can't jump off on you in the middle of the night. He can't make you do anything without your cooperation. He can't enter you without your permission. Contrary to all this stuff that Hollywood concocts, the truth is all the devil can do to hurt you is either get in your head and con you into hurting yourself or con somebody else into hurting you. And that's it. And you see, and that's why truth always triumphs over deception. And you see, so that leads the question then, okay, what, we know that hate is the opposite of love, but what's the absence of love? The Bible would seem to indicate that the absence of love is not hate, but fear. The Bible says Perfect love casts out fear. It doesn't say perfect love casts out hate, does it? To the degree that we lack love, you will find fear. Fear of consequences, fear of being judged, fear of condemnation, fear of punishment, fear of suffering consequences. And you see, that's where political correctness is all based not in hate, but in fear. If I say this, what will people think of me? And you see, that's why the horrible nature of political correctness is it stifles us and it forces us to say the right thing instead of the real thing. And that's why 
true love demands sometimes that we say things that are not popular or that can cause short-term pain. And this is where we not only have to rightly define the word judge, but to rightly define the word love. You realize, I hope, that in the Bible, love is not a noun, it's a verb. In the world, love is a thing, it's a noun, it's an object, it's something you go find or you look for or you lost or you fall in. (laughs) But love is always a thing. Every song on the radio, love is a thing, it's an object. But in the Bible, love is not a thing, it's a verb, it's an action word. It's something, not that we feel, but something we do. And you see, if we are truly loving our neighbor, sometimes that love demands that we cause short-term pain. In the same way that if you go to a doctor, sometimes those examinations hurt, don't they? Sometimes, you know, the doctor, you know, it hurts when I do this, and he grabs it and, oh, man, I just told you that hurts. (laughs) But to have surgery or to have something that's diseased removed from your body is often a short-term pain, but it's part of the healing process. And that's why sometimes, you know, we hear that term tough love, and it's like we think it's an oxymoron, (laughs) How can it be love if it's tough? But I, I don't think tough love is an oxymoron at all. I think it's redundant. <laughs> because for love to be effective, I think it has to be tough. It implies toughness. Because it's hard to say the right thing. It's hard to say the real thing, I should say. And that's what we're going to see a little more when we look at the practical applications of this. So the difference... One of the things you'll see in the world today is going back to the medical analogy. People don't want to address certain behaviors. People don't want to say that certain things are wrong, even though they're clearly wrong by Bible standards, and they're also clearly wrong by society's standards. But we've been so stifled that we're afraid to say certain things out loud. We're afraid to address certain things. And you see, and even worse, a lot of times we end up saying, well, it's okay to do these things because they're not wrong to begin with. Since some good comes out of it, the end justifies the means, or who are we to even say what's right or wrong? A lot of this, I think, started in the 1970s with books like I'm Okay, You're Okay, (laughs) where we read these things. We go, yeah, you know, what's right for me might be wrong for you, or you know, what's good for you might be bad for me, and we buy into that worldly thinking. I've often had people tell me, well, there are no absolute standards. I love how C.S. Lewis deals with that. Somebody tells you there are no absolute standards and what's right for me might be wrong for you, reach across the table and slap him. (laughs) Be amazed at how quickly he decides there is truly right and wrong. I go, well, that was right for me, man. <laughs> but you see that just <laughs> not recommending that. Saying, I'm trying to make a point. <laughs> but it's the same irony as somebody saying, accusing me of being judgmental. You realize that implies a judgment, doesn't it? <laughs> 
It's like somebody says, well, you're awfully judgmental. I go, wow, man, how dare you judge me like that? (laughs) They don't know what to say. (laughs) They look at you like one of them guys on TV that had a magic trick pulled on him. Wow, something just happened here, but I'm trying to catch up. Not sure what, but it was cool. And you see, the irony of judging the judgmental is the same irony as making a statement that like all violent people should be beaten. (laughs) Or all those gun nuts should be shot. (laughs) You see, by design, judging the judgmental is a judgment, isn't it? So, you know, the point of that is, as we go through here, there's a difference between us saying something isn't a problem versus the Christian standard of saying there is a problem, but there is a solution. We come as a package deal offering the world both the nature of the real problem and a solution for it. You see, it's kind of the difference between tearing a house down versus tearing it down to build a better one. Like, I remember when my dad used to remodel houses, the first tool he used was a sledgehammer. (laughs) He went in and destroyed the place only because he knew he would make it better in the end. But there was a deconstruction prior to the reconstruction. And you see, I don't think we're here to tear people down. But I do think that sometimes we need to remove the defective parts or address them in order to build people up better than they were before. I think that's not only the Christian ideal, but I think looking at Christ, that was the Christian model. You see, Christ always took people as they were, didn't he? But he never left them there. He would accept people fully for what they were, but then here's the part that the world misses. He would always try to point them in the right direction and help them take a couple of steps forward, not quantum leap them to where they needed to be, but at least encourage them to move forward a little bit and encourage them to keep moving as they were able to under God's grace. And that's why condemnation, a crino judgment, is so counterproductive to our mission as Christians, because condemnation is a problem with no solution, isn't it? I hear that from people a lot. They say, well, I gave up because I figured I'm already going to hell, so what's the use? I'm already damned. I'm already... Uh, you know, I already didn't make the cut, so what's the use of trying? And you see, and that's why communicating to someone that they're condemned is a hopeless condition. And that's why grace is such a critical aspect of saving people is because they need to understand there is truly an opportunity to get better. But imagine if you went to a doctor with a treatable but fatal illness, and the doctor was afraid of hurting your feelings. So instead of telling you that you have a terminal illness that is curable, he just said, mm, oh, man, I can't tell this guy the truth. No, you know what? You're fine. You're fine. Don't worry about it. Yeah, you're, yeah, you're okay. And you go out and you get sicker and sicker and eventually die. We call that medical malpractice. <laughs> but how many of us would be guilty of spiritual malpractice, 
by knowing that our brothers and sisters are sick with a treatable condition and we don't want to address it for fear of being perceived as judgmental. So that leads then to the question of how, if we can make judgments, then how exactly can we do that and still be in alignment with the truth? And you see, this kind of goes back to uh, to understanding a little more of what the Bible doesn't say. Thinking again in, in absences and not just uh, absolutes or thinking in opposites. Here's what the Bible doesn't say. If we read a passage like this one here in our worship bulletin, uh, going back to Luke 6, notice that it does not say, why don't we just let the blind lead themselves? <laughs> That's your blind brother's problem to figure out his own way, and who are we to, to even bother Leading him. It never says don't lead your blind neighbor, does it? It just says that we can't let the blind lead the blind. Another thing the Bible doesn't say, it doesn't say later on, let your brother deal with his own speck, does it? I mean, isn't that what we would assume that would say is, you know, you need to deal with the plank in your own eye. Now, your brother has a speck in his, but you know what? That's his problem. And he needs to deal with his speck, and you need to deal with your plank. It doesn't say that. What does it say? It says, you hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your eye, and then you will, be, you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. It's interesting, isn't it? it what it doesn't say is that it's a free-for-all and every man for himself. What it does say is we have a responsibility to help people remove their specks. But we can't do it if we're not examining ourselves and dealing with our own issues first. So it just sets priorities. And you see, that kind of leads us into this next part where... The real meat and potatoes of this, then, is really the who, the why, and the how of it. This is the, the who of this is often where Christians tend to get it wrong, I believe, because all too often we think we're called to judge the world, not just, you know, in the crino sense to condemn it. The, world, the Bible clearly says the world doesn't need condemning. It's already that way. And for us to go out and address the world's sins is really not what a lot of this is talking about because when it says brothers and sisters, they mean people inside the church, not outside of it. You see, I don't think that a great opening line when you're trying to convert somebody into Christianity is, you are going to burn in hell for all eternity. <laughs> Is that attractive? I don't think telling people God hates you. <laughs> I, you see, that's not attractive. And even worse, when we take that approach, you know, it's, it's like 
you know, people want to beat up on things the world does. And, well, we need to go down to the abortion clinic by noon so we can start spitting on people. (laughs) Or we need to go down to that, you know, that gas station that's selling pornography and burn it down. You see, we... what we have in the world is a bunch of people doing what worldly people do. Duh. That's what lost people do. Because they have no reason not to, and even more important, they have no power not to. And you see, the whole idea is to bring people in. So they have a source of knowledge and a source of willingness to get a change of heart and a source of power beyond their human capacity. So the way that we effectively reach out to people isn't through condemnation. Because Why? Because it doesn't work. <laughs> but we need to communicate grace. And that's what I love about this ministry here. It's because it's effective. Because we're striking at the root of the problem. We're not out whacking at the leaves. It's easy to beat up people in the world and address what they're doing is wrong. That's pretty obvious based on the results they're getting. But it's not productive to address that. So, and there's some passages in here like in, uh, you know, that I put in here, what, like in 1 Corinthians. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside. God will judge those outside. And again, that seems completely contrary. But it really isn't once we understand proper versus improper judgment. And that's when we get into the why of this. You see, the purpose of judgment is not condemnation, but restoration. In this passage that I put in here from Paul, he was addressing somebody in the church that was doing something that was very wrong, extremely wrong. But what he was addressing even more than that was the fact that people were embracing this like they were proud of it. Like, oh, that's okay. You know, that's, we're actually, that's our token sinner and he's doing very bad things, but we just want everybody to know that he's, he's still okay, but without changing. And you see, what Paul was addressing is, he, and I didn't have it in here, but if you look that up at home and read it in context, he was saying people that are wrong need to know it because the worst possible thing we can do for somebody that's off the path is tell them that they're on it. The most lost people I've ever met weren't out there on Skid Row or out there and living under a bridge or, you know, out, people out there doing you know, horrible things. You see, they at least are in a position to be saved because they know how lost they are. They know they're on the outside. Ironically, the most lost people I've ever met were sitting in churches, believing that they were okay when they weren't. And you see, those are sometimes the hardest people to reach because their lying mind, because the devil always lies. So if you're on the outside, sometimes your head will say, oh, you're fine. And if you're okay, and if you are okay, your head's going to go, you know, you're still not doing enough. You're still lost. So it's hard to discern those voices in our heads sometimes. But those are the people that really need our help the most in order to find restoration. 
But you can't fix something until it admits it's broken. If you take your car into the shop, the first step of fixing it is diagnosing the problem. If you, take, if you go to the doctor, the first step is diagnosing why you're sick, and then they can treat it. And I think that's what we are here for as a church community, to help each other to diagnose what the real problem is so we can affect a real solution. And that does involve making judgments, but it doesn't involve making condemnations. So how exactly do, and the, third, the last thing of the who, by the way, is oftentimes we also want to judge ourselves, don't we? But we use crino judgments on ourselves the same way we do them on other people. And we judge ourselves to hell. We think, well, I know that I'm doing things wrong, and therefore I am too bad to be forgiven. Or Christ can't help me, or I did the unpardonable sin, whatever that we think that is. And ironically, if you're worried about committing the unpardonable sin, that's perfect evidence you haven't. Because people that commit that one, rejection of the Holy Ghost, is, is the very sin that makes you not worry anymore. You have such a hardened heart, you could care less what God thinks. So even if you think you committed it or worried about it, you're okay because you're still salvageable. And knowing that should be great news because we need to acknowledge the problem before we can go about fixing it. The Bible, when it talks about judging ourselves, it uses the word examine yourself. And that's a word that involves diagnosis without condemnation. So how exactly does this look in practical application if we were to try to help people without inflicting condemnation on them? And you see, and that's why I love that story, you know, and if you read some of these verses that I put in here, I think that Timothy talks a lot about that, what this looks like. How do we deal with people that are off the path? How are we dealing with people that need help? I think we need to deal with them like Christ did, gently. We need to deal with them like Christ did, patiently. We need to deal with them like Christ did, carefully. We need to handle people exactly the way that Mike teaches it week after week. Connection, then correction. They'll never care how much you know until they know how much you care. How do we deal with people directly? And you see, that's what that verse means in, that we're dealing with today. When it talks about slander, how often we triangulate things. Where I'm not going to talk to you about what I see you doing, but I'll talk to everybody else about it. <laughs> I mean, we do that even in the natural. How often will we go to a restaurant and get a bad meal? But we're not going to tell the manager, but we'll tell everybody else. <laughs> the only person that can do anything about it is the manager. See, and that's why the Bible standard, the biblical standard for addressing people is directly. If I see you falling into something and I'm concerned about it, I should be talking to you. And we should be talking to each other about it instead of talking to everybody else. That's where the slander comes in, is going out and triangulating and talking to other people about something I should be talking directly to an individual about. 
And then when this gets into uh, judging the law, what exactly are they talking about there in James? You know, he says, when you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. And it says, anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them, Crino judges them to condemnation, speaks against the law and judges it. Well, if I'm judging you even harshly or in a condemning way, how is that judging the law? What are they talking about exactly? You see, what I, what I believe they're talking about is that before I can judge you in a condemning way, I've got to judge God. And what I'm really saying is, you know, God is sleeping at the switch. So I'd better step in and fill in for him while he's gone. <laughs> I start thinking God vacated the Trinity, and since there's an open job there, I should apply for it. <laughs> there's an old saying that there's a fine line between doing God's work and doing God's job. <laughs> and you see how often that we often think, well, I'm here to do God's job. We cannot judge the way God can because God is a perfect judge. He is the only one that is privy to all of the evidence. I can see what you do, but I don't know why you did it. And I don't know what you were thinking when you did it. And I don't know the condition of your heart when you did it. So you see, I think that there's a huge difference between judging behaviors in a discerning sense versus judging people and judging hearts. I, only God Almighty can judge hearts but I don't think that we're ever told to not judge behaviors. I think we're commanded to judge in the respect that it's okay to say, you know what, this doesn't line up to a standard. It's no different than taking a tape measure and determining the length of a board based on the standard of that tape measure. According to this tape measure, that board is 14 inches long. That's not me saying it, it's the tape measure. And then I can take it another step, and that's too short according to these blueprints, or too long. That also is a judgment, but just a judgment to an external standard. And again, to fly in the face of political correctness, I don't think there's anything wrong in simply saying this or that does not line up to a standard. There's no condemnation there, but simply a diagnosis of a problem that Christianity is there to address. And you see, the final piece of this then is, okay, and what law exactly are they talking about when James is writing about judging the law? Anytime you see the word law in the Bible, you always have to stop and go, okay, wait a minute, which law are they talking about exactly? Are they talking about the Old Testament law? Is he referring to judging the Ten Commandments? Is he referring to the New Testament law? Is that a judgment of the law of love? And you see, technically it's both. In both cases, you're saying, well, somehow the law isn't getting enforced. So I am going to be the individual that steps up to the plate, and I am going to perfectly apply the law. But as human beings, we're not capable of that, are we? See, I always thought the Taliban was kind of extreme, but I'm actually worse. If you door ding my car, 
death. <laughs> That's a death sentence right there, boy. <laughs> you cut me off in traffic? Nah, that, that death. Yeah, death. Yeah, somebody should kill him. <laughs> I don't like his driving. <laughs> you steal from me? Oh, double death. Double death. Oh, rip me off? Oh. You know, and the way that I understand, interpret, and apply the law is very hypocritical. Because I'm always more merciful when people are doing something I do. I'm never as acceptable of any behavior that I consider personally to be reprehensible. Since I'm not doing it, nobody should. But if I do it, you know what? I can understand. That's okay. So, again, I think that when we're warned against judgment, it's because we're incapable of doing it justly, rightly, and fairly. But that also opens up a third law that doesn't get talked about nearly enough. And that's what James starts writing about in this book of James, and it's one that often gets overlooked. It's the law of liberty. Well, I understand Old and New Testament law. I understand law versus love. But where did that law of liberty come from? That's a new one. (laughs) That's a third one, isn't it? Do you know where the law of liberty comes in, I believe? It is, the explanation of that is contained in one of my all-time favorite statements. One of the greatest truths that I ever learned in Christianity is simple but totally profound. You've heard it before, but it goes like this. God will always change your behavior by changing your desire. God will always change your behavior by changing your desire. That's what authentic Christianity looks like. You see, God not only gives us knowledge of his will, but the power to carry it out and the change of heart so you have the willingness to do it his way. There is no greater freedom than that. Because if God, gives me a change of heart where I want to do it his way, and he gives me the power to do it his way, I am unstoppable. On the contrary, even if I'm trying to do something right, if I don't want to do it, it is not going to get done. Because we always do what we want to do, don't we? You say, well, I didn't want to go to work last Thursday. Well, but you wanted to go to work more than you wanted to be unemployed. You wanted to work more than you wanted to go without a paycheck. So in that respect, balancing out your wants, you ended up doing what you really wanted to do. And you see, we always do exactly what we want to do. The law of liberty is we find the deeper we get into Christianity and the more God's spirit manifests himself in and through us, the more we find we want to do different things. And there's no greater freedom than that. You see, when I was outside the church, I did pretty much what I wanted to do. (laughs) Until I realized I was in bondage, and when I tried to get away, I realized I'm not doing what I want to do. I don't want to live this way. I didn't want to hurt those people. I don't want to be this person. And I tried to get away, and I couldn't. I didn't know I was tied up until I tried to break free. The irony of Christianity is 
in a life of sin, you get bondage with the illusion of freedom. In Christianity, you get freedom with the illusion of bondage. But we're not tied down in here if it's authentic, if it's real. If we're living by the law of liberty, we get to do exactly what we want to do. We just find we want to do different things. And that's how God transforms from the inside out, not the outside in. And I believe that's the real law that we violate in judging others because we're trying to make them conform. Well, God is trying to make them transform. We're trying to change people from the outside in. Oh, you should talk this way. You should dress this way. You should do these do's. You don't do the don'ts and look this way and get a haircut and a real job and (laughs) burn all your rock and roll albums. But you see, we can hold people to these external standards, but the real work of Christianity is from the inside out, not the outside in. Confirmation doesn't work transformation does if it's real and authentic. So that's the counterproductive nature of condemning others. But I really believe, you know, and hopefully, you know, I'm not saying, oh, this is the last word on this topic. My hope is simply going back to uh, Samuel Clemens. My hope to steal another one of his lines is simply to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. (laughs) And if I can do either, I guess I've done my job. And I'm trying to encourage dialogue and simply think about some things from a different angle and try to discern, you know, what is productive and what isn't. You know, and to wrap this up, there's a great line, you know, where I think that people that are truly on the right path are going to welcome correction. One of my all-time favorite verses, Proverbs 12.1, Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge but he who hates correction is stupid. (laughs) I didn't say it. (laughs) Thus saith the Lord. (laughs) I have it on good authority that that actually is a pretty good translation. (laughs) He who hates correction is stupid. (laughs) That sounds judgmental. I think it's correct. And I think the more that we realize that we have a solution for these problems, the more foolish it is to live in the problem when Christ really does offer us the ultimate solution. And as we close in prayer, Lord, so many people want to quote you and use the line, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. But they're not as quick to quote the rest of it. Were you told that woman caught in adultery, Go and sin no more. And understanding you and grace, we understand now that you didn't say, go and sin no more or else. Go and sin no more or God's going to get you. But rather, we understand, Lord, that what you were saying is go and sin no more because you're better than that. Because I love you. You are loved by God Almighty. The creator of heaven and earth loves you so much that you don't have to do the things that you used to do that you can go forward and go and be better than that. And I'll give you this knowledge, the willingness, and the power to rise above what you used to do. And Help us all to take that mindset into this coming week, Lord, that you, under your grace and with your spirit, we can do better. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.